please turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. Trust that you had a wonderful day yesterday celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ with your friends and family. Matthew chapter 2, we began looking at Matthew chapter 2 last week as we looked at the story of Herod and the wise men, and we began looking at this idea of of Christmas worship in Matthew chapter 2. When we looked at verses 1 through 18 last week, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 uh, this week, uh, considering some things we didn't look at those verses uh, last week. So if you would, in honor of God, as we read his word together, stand with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin our time of looking at this story together. And Father, we are so thankful this morning as we consider this this week. We're thankful not uh, for the gifts primarily that we received yesterday. Our, our, our primary source of, of joy is not in the things that we received. It's not even in the family that we spent time with as as wonderful as that was, uh, Father, our, our joy and our delight is in you, and there's nothing besides you that, that can in- increase our joy. In you, there is fullness of joy. And, and Father, help us this morning as we consider worship to understand that truth and apply it in our lives. Open your word to us. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. On Tuesday, uh, for the first time in almost 400 years, there was a full lunar eclipse on the winter solstice. It's kind of incredible to think about. Our sun, as you know, is really big and really bright. The sun is 330,000 times the mass of our Earth. You could fit one million Earths inside of our sun, and if you melted our Earth, which 
is not recommended. You could fit uh, 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. If you took all the mass of our solar system, all the, the planets and, and moons and asteroids, and, and put them all together, the sun would comprise 99.86% of that mass. The sun is huge. The sun is bright. It would take four septillion, that's four with like 24 zeros after it, four septillion 100-watt light bulbs to equal the brightness of the sun. It's big and it's really bright. And on Tuesday, our sun was hurtling through space at 500,000 miles an hour. And as it was doing that, our Earth was orbiting it and the moon was orbiting our Earth, and the moon came behind the shadow of the Earth, and our tiny, insignificant Earth was able to block the light of the sun. And as the moon passed behind the Earth into its shadow, the Earth blocked the rays of the sun, and the moon became a cold, dark, lifeless piece of rock. You see, the sun is the source from which the moon obtains its light. The moon has no light inherent of itself. And as the earth, tiny little earth, blocked the glorious sun, the moon went cold. Do you want to know how you can destroy our church? Would you like to know how you could destroy Bethany Community Church? Simply block the glory of God. If you wish to destroy Bethany Community Church, it's, it's very simple. Cause the people at our church to no longer see and behold the glory of God. For like the moon, we have no light in and of ourselves. The life that exists at our church is not due to the ministries that we have. The good things about our church are not due to the, the wonderful people that serve here, or the, the great elders or the, the very handsome pastoral staff. Uh, none of those things, none of those things is where our church finds its life and its joy and its glory. It's not in those things. Our church is alive because of the light of God and the worship of God and God's glory. And if you wish to cause our church to become a cold, dark, lifeless place, it's very simple. Block the worship of God. Cause us to turn our eyes from God inward onto ourselves, and our church will become a cold, dark, lifeless place. The extent to which our church is a healthy church is directly proportional to our focus and our passion for the worship of God. Last week, as we began looking at Matthew chapter 2, we saw the characteristics of self-worship as we looked at the life of Herod. Remember, as we looked at Herod, we saw the traits of a self-worshipper. Herod had a relentless, ruthless passion for his own glory. 
And the self-worshipper relentlessly and ruthlessly seeks his own glory at the expense of his own good. So even though it was not in Herod's self-interest to seek his own glory, he did so ruthlessly, he did so relentlessly, and as he pursued his own glory, he was working to bring about his own demise. Remember some of the characteristics we saw of a self-worshipper? First of all, we saw that a self-worshipper becomes troubled as God's plans come into conflict with his own desires. The self-worshipper has these desires, and as he sees God's plan coming into conflict with his desires, a self-worshipper becomes troubled. We also saw last week that a self-worshipper directly defies God's plans. He comes to God's word, and as he sees what God's will is, he rejects that revelation and knowingly opposes God's plans. We also saw, as we looked at the life of Herod, that a a self-worshipper sometimes hypocritically pretends to worship God. And finally, we saw last week, the self-worshipper becomes furious when his own plans are thwarted. Because that's inevitable, right? As a person seeks their own glory and has their own plans and how to perceive and how to pursue their glory, it's inevitable that their plans and God's plans are going to come on a collision course. And the self-worshipper, instead of recognizing that and turning away from that and turning and focusing his energy on worshiping God instead, the self-worshipper continues that self-destructive path and runs into God's divine sovereign plan. That's the self-worshipper. The self-worshipper relentlessly and ruthlessly pursues his own glory at the expense of his own good. What we're going to see this morning as we look at the traits of the true worshiper, the worshiper who pursues God's glory, we're going to see that the true worshiper pursues his own joy and his own good as he relentlessly pursues the glory of God. The true worshiper beholds God's glory, looks upon God, contemplates his wonder and his glory and his beauty, and pursues that. And as the true worshiper pursues that, he is simultaneously pursuing that which will bring ultimate joy. Last week, we saw the traits of the self-worshipper. This morning, we're looking at the characteristics, the traits of the true worshiper. So please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2 if you're not there already. We looked at this text last week, but this morning let's look at it from the characteristics of the wise men, the, the traits of the wise men here. And the first trait of the true worshiper that we notice is that the true worshiper humbly seeks to know and follow God's will. There's going to be a progression among these traits, so, so notice that as well. But the first trait is the true worshiper humbly seeks to know and follow God's will. Look at verse 1. We see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And then it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, whenever we encounter the wise men here in Matthew chapter 2, in fact, by the way, Matthew chapter 2 is the only place that we encounter these wise men in the Gospels. As we encounter these wise men, a lot of questions come to mind. The first question is, is who are these guys? Uh, Who are these guys that came from the east? And the short answer is, we don't really know. That's the short answer. We, we don't know a lot about these guys that are called the wise men by Matthew and, and came from the east. 
A lot of traditions have developed over the years. For example, the tradition says that there's, there's three of them. We don't know the number. The tradition says that they're of, of different skin tones, representing the, the three different sons of Noah. We don't know that. Tradition tells us their, their names, Gaspar and Malchior and Balthazar or something like that. We don't know that as well. That's tradition. We don't know a lot about who these guys are. We do have some biblical speculation that we can engage in, but even this, understand, is, is speculation. This term magi or wise men that's used to refer to these men who travel from the east is also used in Scripture to describe a group of men who served as advisors and counselors to kings and emperors. See, this group of magi served as, as advisors to kings and emperors of the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, if you want to, uh, turn to Esther chapter 1. And in Esther chapter 1, we encounter some wise men. Remember the story in Esther chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as we call him, has just been uh, shamed by his wife, Queen Vashti. He sent for her, and she refuses to come. And now Xerxes is kind of confused about what he does now. And so who does he turn to? He turns to this group of wise men. We see this in verse 13. He, he asks the wise men, and this is what uh, the writer of Esther tells us about these guys. He says, they were those who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure to, towards all who were versed in law and judgment. Uh, these wise men served as counselors to the king. In fact, a king, before he could become king of the Medo-Persian Empire, he would have to receive counsel and instruction from this group of wise men, would have to pass a test, and then they would say, yes, this guy's qualified to reign. They serve as advisors. They were a very learned men. They were astrologers and astronomers. They knew a lot about the sky, and they were those who kind of kept the kings in check concerning the law. In fact, it goes on. It says in verse, verse uh, 15, he's asking, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then one of them says this. He says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials. And he goes on. And then in verse 19, this counselor, this magi says, if it please the king, let a, a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. And so these advisors, these magis, would also help write the laws. In the book of Esther and the book of Daniel, you often see the kings struggling to kind of figure a way to get out of the law, but the law was something that the magi helped write, they helped enforce, and they were very wise, learned people. So, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, who are these guys from the east? We don't know. That's the short answer. Tradition gives us a lot of speculation. Now, some biblical speculation tells us that these might be people who are part of this group that throughout history had served as advisors and counselors to kings, especially kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's one question. One question, who are they? Short answer, not really sure. They're from the east. What about this question? Now, how did these guys know to come? What brought them to Jerusalem? Well, look at, look at the verse, verse, chapter, verse 2 of Matthew 2. They say, we saw his star when it rose. Now, that doesn't tell us a whole lot either, does it? Again, there's been speculation, some of it biblical speculation. Perhaps 
Daniel and other Israelites as they were carried off into exile and interacted with these magi. We know that as Daniel interacted with some of the magi, he was revealing to them truths about God. And perhaps the magi from Daniel and other Israelites that were carried off into exile learned something about Yahweh God and received some of his special revelation, understood that there was this coming Messiah. But even if that's true, and I think that's reasonable to assume, how did they preserve that? We don't know. And then furthermore, this is very mysterious. It says there's this star when it rose, and somehow this star rising reveals to them that there's this coming king. How is that possible? Short answer again, I don't know. Some have speculated that it was a a comet. Some have speculated that the, the planets aligned just rightly. Is that the case? I don't know. But think about this. Think about this. God could have done it any way he desired, right? Exodus chapter 13 says that the Lord went before the Israelites like a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Acts chapter 9 verse 3 says as as, as, uh, Saul approached Damascus, there was a light of heaven that flashed around him. Revelation 1 says that Jesus' face was like the sun shining in full strength. How did the wise men know what this star represented? How did they know that it was announcing a king? Again, short answer, I don't know. But what I do know this is that there was some light that announced to them a coming king of the Jews. And they understood that revelation, and God could have given them that revelation in any way that he desired. So who are they? Not quite sure. How did they know that there was this coming king? Again, I don't know. Third question, why did they come? And here we have crystal clarity. Look again at the text. They say, we have come from the east. We've come when we saw his star rising. And why? We have come to worship him. It's very possible that even Matthew, as he wrote these words, didn't know who these men were exactly or where they had come from or how they had understood. But there's one thing that he understood, and he wanted to make sure that we understood. These wise men came to worship Jesus. They came responding to the revelation that they had received from God And they came in order to worship the king of the Jews. Notice the contrast between Herod that we saw last week and these wise men this week. Last week we saw Herod in his pride pursuing his own glory. This week we see wise men traveling a great distance in order to engage in worship of God. We don't know where they came from. We don't know how they knew. We know simply that they responded to God's revelation and decided to worship Jesus. Matthew tells us that very clearly. Let me read you a little passage from Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, we realize, as we read it together, that every human being who has ever been born who has the the mental ability to process God's general revelation, has understood something about God. Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. What he's saying there is that God's general revelation proclaims to all people that there is a God. If you have the ability to, to smell the world around you, to, to taste things, if you have the ability to look into the sky and see the heavens during the day, the stars at night, then you have the ability to understand that there is a creator God. Every person who has ever been born who has the ability to process God's general revelation has the ability to understand that there is a creator God and they need to understand that their responsibility in light of the fact that there is a creator God is to worship him. The problem is that they do not. Romans chapter 1 describes what happens next. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is, is talking about God's revelation to all people. And in Romans 1, Paul says this about humanity. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Listen to this. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to him for, by his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clear, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. In other words, what he's saying there is that every human being has within them a voice saying there's a God. And every human being has this voice outside of them in the created realm saying, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God, worship him. The problem is, according to verse 18 of Romans 1, that every human being also has this tendency, the tendency to suppress that knowledge that God has revealed and say, no, there's not, no, there's not, no, there's not. The wise men, we don't know exactly how they received this revelation about God. But somehow, they received this revelation that there was this king of the Jews, and they understood that they did not have the ability to worship him where they were. It's like this. It's like a child who's sitting in his room playing with his toys. And hears the voice of his mom calling. And as he hears his name called, he has this choice. Am I going to, to follow my mom's voice and go to her and hear what she's saying, or am I going to refuse to find out what she desires from me? Every human being has God calling out their name, calling out them to, to respond to his revelation. But apart from the gracious intervention of God, no human being responds to that call to find out what God desires of them. The wise men receive this revelation. They understand that there's a coming king. They recognize they cannot worship him where they are, and so they seek out further revelations so they can understand who God is and what he desires of them and who this, this king is. And that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. The true worshiper, and this is where all worship begins, 
the one who's going to truly worship God, humbles themselves, and seeks to find out more about God. Not sure where you are this morning in your relationship with God. Perhaps you are far removed from God, and you've been pursuing a path that has continued to draw you away from God. The person who is going to worship God recognizes that they're on a path that leads them away from God and repents, turns from that path, and turns in faith to the person of Jesus Christ, seeking to know and worship God. Do you desire to worship God afresh this next year? It requires humbling oneself and going to God's special revelation of Scripture to know and understand who God is and what he desires you to do. That's what the wise men do in this situation. They recognize that there's a God. They recognize that the king of the Jews has been born. And so they go to Jerusalem and they receive God's special revelation, even through these terrible chief priests. And they find out more specifically about this Christ. The first trait of the true worshiper is that he humbly seeks to know and follow God's will. That brings us to the second trait of the true worshiper. The true worshiper also greatly rejoices in worship. Look again at the text. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, remember we saw the hypocritical worship of Herod. It says that Herod sends them to Bethlehem. He receives from the chief priests and the the rulers there, the the, uh, chief priests and the scribes of the people. He receives from them the, the revelation concerning Jesus, sends them to Bethlehem, and he says this, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child is. And so first of all, this light serves as a revelation to the wise men telling them that there's a king. Now it's directing their steps more exactly and shows them where the child is. And now verse 10, I think verse 10 is perhaps the most important verse for us in this entire text. Verse 10 tells us this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Brothers and sisters, that's the essence of true worship. They, it's a wonderful translation, by the way. They rejoiced. How do they rejoice? Well, with joy. What kind of rejoicing was it? Exceeding. What kind of joy was it? Was it a lot. They rejoiced a lot with a lot of joy. Do you get the idea that they're a little excited about this kid? <laughs> they see Jesus, and they don't come before him and say, oh, yep, that's what we we're looking for. They see Jesus, and they, they rejoice with great joy. The essence of true worship is a heart that is filled with joy. And as it beholds the glory of God, the true worshiping heart rejoices in the ability to fathom God and respond in worship to him. True worship recognizes the value and the beauty of of God and, and responds in joy. John Piper famously puts it this way. John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
apart from joy, true worship does not exist. That is a crucial point to fathom. Very often we have this wrong understanding of worship. We think the more miserable we are, the more uh, uh, hard worship is on us, the greater glory God will receive. And so if we're enjoying something, we think, well, this, this can't be worship. Worship needs to, to make us miserable. And the, the more miserable I am, the more glory God gets. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up at, at 4.30 in the morning to do my quiet time. I hate 4.30 in the morning. And the more I hate it, the more God will love it. Imagine this scene. Imagine you're, you see a, a father wrestling around with his kid. He's wrestling his little boy. And he's tickling him, and the little boy's laughing. You think, oh, that's, that's so sweet. And you notice the little boy's laughing. You look at his face, and you see the joy on the little boy's face. And then you look at the dad's face. And you notice that the dad is smiling too. And you ask the dad, you interrupt him, you say, look, dude, why are you smiling? You're not being tickled. What, what are you so happy about? Did your kid agree to pay for college or something? I mean, what's, what's the joy on your face? And if the dad thought about it, he might say this. I'm happy, I'm smiling, I'm joyful because my child is delighting in me. I'm receiving greater joy because I recognize that I'm a source of joy for my child. And the same is true in worship. As you and I delight in God and enjoy God, God receives greater glory. Joy and worship are linked together. You cannot separate the true, the, the two. The true worshiper rejoices exceedingly with great joy. Let me show you some scriptures that, that prove this, this point even further. The psalmist says in Psalm 4-7, You, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, God, I have more joy in contemplating you than I do when, with all the material possessions in the world. The psalmist says in Psalm 16-11, listen to this, you make known to me the path of life. Listen to this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you get that phrase? There is fullness of joy in your presence. In other words, God, when I'm with you, there's nothing you could add to this that would make it more joyful for me. It's not like, okay, I'm with God, but man, if I had God and like a big piece of fudge, that would be really joyful. You know, whenever we, we experience things on, here on earth, we may uh, sit down to, to a meal, and, and it's a great meal, and you think, oh, if I just had this to the meal, it would be even better. Or you're, you're sitting down, and you're, you're, you're watching a, a movie, and you're kind of enjoying the time with the family. Boy, if, if I also had a, a, you know, a big glass of iced tea, that would make this experience all the more joyful. In God's presence, the true worshiper recognizes this is it. This is the height of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy. The true worshiper greatly rejoices in worship. Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. You hear that? God delights in the well-being of his servant. As God's servant rejoices in God, God loves that and receives greater glory because of it. 
It's an amazing truth, and we miss it so often in our, in our lackadaisical worship. In Isaiah, we also see this truth illustrated. Isaiah 12, verse 3, we read this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. Why? For he has done gloriously. Psalm 71, 23 says the same truth. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, my soul also, which you have redeemed. In other words, as we contemplate the miracle of our salvation, the wonder of our redemption, we have to respond with joy. And if you and I are not responding with joy to the, the God who has redeemed us, there's something seriously wrong with us. We haven't understood the, the majesty of God. We don't understand the magnitude of the gift that he's given us. Yesterday, my five-year-old son opened a gift. And as he opened this gift, it, it was amazing. He raised his hands up in the air, and he just looked at the gift, and then he put his, his head in his hands and fell on the couch, the little uh, uh, ottoman there, and just shook his head in his hands. He couldn't believe that life was this good. <laughs> Can it be possible that I received this gift, he was saying. He couldn't believe it. It was joy. We're working on what he finds joy in. But, but you see the point, right? What was he saying about that gift? That's a pretty impressive gift is what he was saying. I can't believe that I received this gift. Do you want to really worship God? Do you want to really worship God? Enjoy him. Take joy in him. Take delight in him. In your presence is fullness of joy. And the wise men here in verse 10 come into the presence of Jesus, and they aren't lackadaisical about this. Oh, we're here. Let's sing some songs. It says they see the star. They recognize how close they are to being able to obtain the, their heart's desire, and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Do you want to have great worship? Have great joy. That's a joy that lasts even in difficult times. Habakkuk 3.17 Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, even though there won't be any crops, even though there won't be any food, in verse 18 it says, verse 18 he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even when external circumstances aren't going the way that Habakkuk would have desired, even though his life is in danger, he takes joy and rejoices in it. The true worshiper, the true worshiper humbly seeks to know and follow God's will. As he does that, he greatly rejoices in his worship. That brings us to the third characteristic of the true worshiper. The true worshiper gladly gives up his treasures. Verse 11, it says they go into the house 
They saw the child and Mary his mother. And what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. And as a response to that act of worship, they open up their treasures and they offer him gifts, gold and, and frankincense and myrrh. Now again, like the other aspects of the story, there's been a lot of speculation about what's meant by the gold and the, and the frankincense and, and the myrrh. And, and again, we, we don't know. The, the text doesn't tell us. It, it, there's some things that are possible. You know, gold was uh, for a king, so maybe this was showing his, his kingliness. Uh, frankincense was like a, a pure incense that could be offered to a deity, and so, so perhaps it's showing his divinity. The myrrh was something that would be used uh, in various circumstances, but sometimes in burials, and so perhaps this was showing his humanity. Perhaps, we don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure is that these were valuable gifts. They were valuable gifts. And the wise men don't begrudgingly offer these gifts. They give these gifts to a king. Is the giving of gifts the worship itself? The text separates them. It says they first worshiped, and then they opened their treasures, and, and they offered him these gifts. They're separate, but they're also linked together. In fact, Scripture often links our view of God with our view of material possessions. Catch that? Scripture often links the quality of our worship with how we handle our material possessions. Notice there's a, there's a progression we humble ourselves first, we rejoice in God, and then as we rejoice in God and delight in him, we gladly give up our treasure because of, of his value. Think of what we're going to look at in the coming months in the Gospel of Luke. There's a very interesting thing that takes place in Luke 18 and Luke 19. In Luke 18, we encounter the rich young ruler in Luke 18, there's this rich young ruler, and this rich young ruler wants to know how he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, uh, what, what, do you, what, do you, uh, what do you think? Why do you call me good? Have you kept all these commandments? The guy says, I've kept all these commandments. Jesus says, one thing you still lack, he's showing him his heart, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's Luke 18. There's this rich young ruler. He's offered this opportunity to come and follow Jesus. Jesus, showing him the state of his heart, says, get rid of all these things. Come follow me. The true worshiper says, sounds great. Let's do it. All these things are nothing compared to you. But that's not what the rich young ruler does. That's Luke 18. Then just a few paragraphs later, we come to Luke 19. And in Luke 19, we encounter Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus receives, it says in verse 6 of Luke 19, receives uh, Jesus joyfully. And then Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone else, I'm going to give to him fourfold. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. The person who worships God gladly gives up everything in light of of the matchless treasure of the person of Jesus Christ. The person who's not worshiping God holds on and clings to earthly treasure. It's an incredible contrast. Now, let me say this. 
you are not going to find someone who hates, detests the health and wealth gospel more than me. I hate it. I detest it with every fiber of my being. The health and wealth gospel proclaims this message, a gift to God, and and he will give physical possessions back to you. Name it, claim it. Name something you want that's physical, name it, and you get it. I hate that teaching. You know why I hate it? I hate it not because of the physical possessions that it talks about. In other words, I'm not saying I hate it because it's, it's wrong to have physical possessions. The reason I hate it so much, this teaching so much, is because it devalues the matchless glory of God. The treasure that God promises his people is himself. And the true worshiper delights in God himself. And the health and wealth gospel deludes and deceives people as it promises possessions instead of a God. These wise men gladly give up their treasures because of the opportunity of obtaining the matchless treasure of Jesus Christ. Imagine, imagine a, your child came to you yesterday, said, Mom and Dad, it's Christmas. I have to give you a present. I don't know why you want me to give you a present. It's all your money anyway. You could buy something a lot nicer than I can on my $3 a week allowance. But here you go. It's a tie. What would you Hey, thanks. What's the ideal way that your kid gives you a gift? Dad, open it. Come on, open it. Let's open my present first to you. Open it, open, open, open it. It's a tie! Don't you love it, Dad? Now, a dad could have bought his own tie, right? But his child, even though the child knows that everything he has comes from mom and dad, the child rejoices and delights in being able to give it to dad because he he loves dad or he loves mom so much. The true worshiper has humbled himself or herself. The true worshiper rejoices in worship. And the true worshiper uses everything in their life, be it their, their, their own bodies, be it their physical possessions uses everything as a means to the end of worshiping God. And the physical possessions, physical life, is no longer the end in and of itself. The end is the glory and the worship of God, and the true worshiper pursues that with a fervor and a passion that is undeniable. Our church is a church that I love dearly. I love the life that is here. I love the people that are here. I love the ministries that we have here. I love the, 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 the joy and the, the delight that's here. But none of those things that are in our church, the, the things you see listed in the bulletin about ministry and programs, none of those things are why our church is a healthy church. To the, to the degree that our church is a healthy church, our church is healthy because we have beheld 
the glory of a matchless God. And we are worshiping him. The moon goes behind the shadow of the earth and it becomes cold and dark and lifeless if our church loses that focus and turns its eyes away from God onto itself, we become a cold, lifeless, dark place. May God give us the grace to humbly seek to know him, to joyfully worship him, and gladly give all in the pursuit of exalting his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It is him who we value above all the other things in our life. We pray this in his name. Amen.